All right. In the name of the Father, and Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I'm uh, very grateful to be here with you guys and to start this journey together as we uh, study and discuss the scriptures. And so uh, this will be hopefully the first of uh, many meetings uh, in which we uh, get together and just share our thoughts and learn and grow from one another. And uh, as I was thinking about where to start this uh, beautiful journey, I uh, initially gravitated to the, the gospel accounts. I think that's always the best place for us to start, is with the gospel. Um, but with that being said, my favorite gospel is the gospel of John. And I initially wanted to study the gospel of John together. But the gospel of John is, uh, is a, a little heavy. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to, to absorb. And so I thought it might be a little too much to just dive into the gospel of John from the start. So my very next thought was um, to discuss the first epistle of St. John, which is basically like the very next best thing, because um, you'll, you'll get a similar flavor of what's discussed in the gospel account. And um, you'll see that in the, the first epistle of St. John as well. So I thought uh, we would just start with, with the first epistle of St. John. And today, um, hopefully we just get through the first couple of verses because we're going to lay down the, the foundation of um, what, what this epistle is really all about, just to get a little introduction of, of the letter. So uh, I hope that this could be... Uh, a discussion as much as possible, and I hope that we could just freely share our thoughts and learn from one another. So I'm looking forward to uh, learning from everybody as well. Um, I'm going to try as much of, as possible to just share um, quotes from the fathers and try to get us a little bit more familiarized with uh, the patristics. I think um, we tend to shy away from that because for some reason... Um, some of the names might seem a little too big for us, but uh, in reality, I think that's what puts the scriptures in uh, in the proper light and uh, gives us uh, the best and most accurate explanation. So um, throughout our discussion, I'll just throw out some quotes that I think will help us uh, understand the, the scriptures a little bit better and uh, we'll just share our thoughts on uh, whatever comes to mind. All right, so before we jump in, I'm just going to share a few things from um, the the context of uh, of the epistle, and uh, these are just some notes from uh, from the fathers, especially from uh, Father um, Tadros Malati's book. Um, he has um, some of the best commentaries on scriptures. And uh, he references the early fathers um, throughout all his commentaries. So I just pulled a few things that I think will help us get uh, a better idea of the context of this epistle before we actually discuss it. All right. So the first thing for introduction is uh, is the authorship. 
So St. John the Evangelist is the author of the epistle, uh, although there is actually no formal introduction or conclusion or any record of St. John's name in the epistle. But the author refers to his first gospel, his previous gospel, and uh, assumes that the reader is already familiar with it. Um, and uh, his, his gospel is intended for, for believers. So he kind of just dives right in. He uses um, the same literary similarities um, as you would see in the gospel account. He actually uses um, some key phrases that are only found in the gospel of St. John. And so uh, there are um, enough um, similarities um, th that really point to um, the same authorship. And uh, the authorship is indisputably uh, agreed upon by tradition and um, uh, all, all of scholarship um, throughout the academic circles. All right, so the date is um, typically dated to the end of the first century between 90 and 95 AD. And uh, the location in which this epistle uh, was written um, was in Ephesus. And that's St. John's presiding diocese. Now, the context of the epistle. So it's written to believers. And uh, that's something that uh, we alluded to earlier in our introduction. And I think that's a little bit more relevant for us because we're already in the church. We're already uh, on the, the path. We're already um, walking towards Christ. We started our journey with Christ. We're already in the church. And so this is a little bit more relevant to us. Um, and it's a little bit different than uh, what you might see in the, the synoptic gospel accounts, um, as, for example, Matthew is writing to the Jews, and um, his primary um, incentive is to convince the Jews that Christ is the Messiah, whereas um, for the Gospel of John, he already assumes that you believe and you uh, understand that Christ is the Messiah, and so kind of takes you to the next step. And so uh, this, this epistle is written after the destruction of the temple. And what that means to us is that there are less concerns about the, the, the issues that the church faced earlier on uh, in regards to um, the Judaizers and um, some um, Judaic issues. Um, the bigger concerns that John is addressing are uh, Christological issues, and uh, he addresses the Gnostics because um, they really misunderstand uh, what true knowledge is, because uh, true knowledge is to, to know Christ himself. And so the very first thing that he starts with in his, his epistle is, Christology. He starts with um, a, a deep uh, passage on the Incarnation. Um, it's, it's a profound set of four verses that really set the tone for what the whole epistle is all about. And so that's pretty much the major 
context of the epistle. So, the purpose. <clears throat> there are a few purposes throughout the, the letter as a whole. First is that um, he may increase our joy. So he's writing for the purpose of giving the believers a reason to be joyful. And he makes that very clear from the start. Like, we're probably going to get into just the first few verses of the first chapter today, and you'll get that right away from the first few verses that I have written to you that you may have joy, that you may share in our joy. Okay? And the reality is there is no true Christian without joy. Because if you believe in His death and His resurrection, that He has given us the spirit of sonship, that He has given us new life, no circumstances can compromise that joy. So that's the, one of the purposes that He's writing. Another purpose is that we may refrain from sin, that we may break away from darkness and live in the light. And you're going to see this stark contrast between darkness and light. You're going to see the contrast between death and life. Um, and that's going to be the theme throughout the epistle. He's also writing for us to avoid deception or deceivers. Um, he's going to um, raise our awareness towards false doctrines. Um, and, and those things don't just exist in the first century. There are false doctrines today. And we're going to get into that as we... Um, study the, this this letter, but I don't want you to think as false doctrines in the sense of like the Arian heresy or the Gnostic heresy. Right now, there are doctrines that are very subtle and disguised, but they are heretical, but they don't have that same label that they had in the first couple of centuries. So this is very applicable to us today as well. And uh, the final purpose is that we may know Him. And, and this word, to know Him, is repeated 27 times in this epistle. And this epistle is very short. It's just five chapters. So in these five chapters, he repeats the word, knowing Him, or some derivative of that word, 27 times. So uh, again, the, the purpose of our life is to be united to Him, to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. And he makes that very clear. And to be confident in our eternal life with him. Uh, that our life is not just limited to um, the time that we have on earth, but for eternity. Alright. Any questions so far? Alright, let's break up the chapters a little bit. Just so you're going to get this little aerial overview of what you're going to expect. And then we're going to dive right in. Okay. So... Chapter 1 is the, uh, uh, an emphasis on the divine incarnation, its purpose and effect for believers. And uh, the very first few verses, the first four verses, hopefully we at least cover that today, uh, are a very profound uh, text on the incarnation itself. And uh, it's very poetic, it's deep, and there's a lot for us to meditate on right there. Second chapter emphasizes our faith in the incarnate God, our love for the Lord and our brothers. So he kind of builds on the incarnation and how 
our faith in His incarnation produces our love for Him and for our brothers and sisters. Chapter 3 is that God loved us and granted us the adoption. So what's our responsibility as sons? What's our responsibility as um, children that are adopted into the faith to respond to that love that He has given us? Okay. The fourth chapter focuses on how to love Him in wisdom so that heresies may not deceive us. And it's important for us to like, keep our, our guard up, to be cautious throughout our walk with Him because um, the devil actually challenges us with all of these um, intricate and subtle heresies the closer we get to God because... He fights us even harder every step we take closer to God. So for the believers, this is even more important because the more you study theology, the closer you get to God, the more He wants to trip us up and deviate our theological understanding. And that's very important because our theology will shape, shape the way we practice. Okay? Finally, in chapter 5, he focuses on the capabilities of our faith in the incarnate Lord. So how our faith can really build us in, in God. Alright. So, this is, I'm not going to go through each one here specifically, but you have this in your handout, and you'll see that the theme kind of repeats into two parts. It's, it's beautiful because this epistle is very poetic. It has obedience, love, and truth in the first part, in the sense of God being light, and how God being light gives us uh, the, uh, the, the way to obedience, the way to love Him, and the way to be in His truth. And then God as love also gives us the way to be obedient, love, loving Him, and being in His truth. So you'll see this kind of repeat a second time at the second half of the epistle. Alright, so... Any questions? That's all I'm going to mention for the introduction. And that's probably the quickest introduction I've ever given on, on a, a book. It's just five chapters. Alright, no questions? Alright, so I want this to be as, as much as possible uh, a discussion. Um, there's really not much to discuss for the introduction because it's just me explaining the context of the, of the book. But when we get into the text, it's important for us to just like share thoughts. All I have are just some questions and some explanations from the patristics that I thought would be helpful. I don't have a specific like lecture assigned or anything that's set up already so it's just for us to freely discuss this text together okay alright so who could read for us the first four verses thanks Jack that which was from the beginning which we, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. 
that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Okay. So, what I like to do after we just read a couple of verses is to take a moment to personally read them. So, we'll personally read them because sometimes it just sinks in a little bit differently when you read it to yourself. So, take a moment to do that and then we'll discuss it together. Just the first four verses. Alright, so what do you guys think? I'm telling you, he dives straight in. Like, there's no introduction. There's no uh, Paul, the bondservant of the Lord. How you guys doing? I'm, <laughs> it's just, John's diving right in. So what do, what do you think of the first couple of verses? Okay. Yeah, just go for it. Um, it seems like he's talking from experience with Christ, and he's talking to people who, like you said, like are believers. So he uses all of these phrases, um, but to say, like, you all know that this, like, what I'm about to say is all based on what we heard, what we saw, we saw Jesus come, we've touched him, right? He, uh, or we've we, what did he say? And our hands have handled. I think that means when he touched. Like yeah, yeah, touched yeah him. definitely. Um, and we all have this experience with Christ. And so now, I think he's talking to people, even if they haven't seen Jesus, they're like, well, now, like, I've had this experience with Jesus. Now I'm going to share this with you so that you could be joyful like I am. Exactly. Like, he's, he's given his readers... His credentials. Like, I'm not giving you a theory. I'm not handing to you a philosophy. Like, this is empirical data. Like, not just something I observed, but something that I have touched and my hands have handled. Like, something that I have personally experienced. And this experience is what I want to relay to you. Now... St. Augustine, when he is commenting on this epistle, just straight out says, this is my favorite epistle. Okay? And uh, I, I, I agree with him. Because this epistle kind of like has a, like a, a very deep message for each believer. Okay? So look at, look at the reason why he thinks this epistle is so special. He says, this book, is very sweet to every healthy Christian heart. And it should constantly be in the mind of God's holy church. But I choose it more particularly because it specially commends us to love. The person who possesses the thing which he hears about in this epistle must rejoice when he hears it. His reading will be like oil to a flame. So, it's so special to him because this is like sparking that love in his heart for God. So, you're going to see that throughout the rest of this epistle. Like, the more we meditate on God, the more we realize His love for, for us, and the more that fuels our love for Him. And this is something He's going to repeat over and over and over again. He says, 
later on that we love Him because He loved us first. That's the reason for our love for Him. And it's not until you realize that love that your love can grow. If you don't realize that you've been loved, if you don't realize that He became man, emptied Himself, and endured the hunger and the thirst and the pain, the humiliation and the shame on the cross for you, out of His love for you, nothing else will move you. And for St. Augustine, he says, this is, this is special for me because nothing talks about His love more intimately than this. So, what is, what is His greatest act of love? The cross. Okay, what did that require? Take a step back. How can, how can God die? Incarnation. Incarnation. It, it is impossible for God to die. We say the divinity is impassable. Impassable means it cannot be penetrated, it cannot be affected, it cannot be harmed or destroyed. So for God to die, that would require for Him to be passable, to be mortal. He is immortal. How can immortality be subject to death? So for Him to be subject to death and to be crucified on the cross, He would have to empty Himself of His glory and accept unto Himself our limitations become man. And in doing so, open this opportunity for Him to accept the cross. Okay? So... In the first couple of verses, this is exactly what he's focusing on. First couple of verses are completely on the incarnation. He says, the life was revealed. Hmm? And the, life was revealed. the life was revealed. God was revealed. This is exactly the same literary device that you see in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him. And he, later he says, and the Word became flesh. Right? This Word that was from the beginning became flesh. Here he says, this life was revealed. And he says, that we have heard Him, seen Him, and touched Him. Okay? So, the, the foundation for our faith is that Christ became man. As a matter of fact, when you think of the gospel, how the apostles preached the gospel, or the message of the gospel, what did that really entail? What was the good news? You know the gospel means good news. What was this good news? Okay, more specifically. Hmm? Okay. It wasn't like this elaborate sermon whenever they would proclaim the gospel. The gospel is very simple. God became man, died, and rose from the dead. 
So whenever you hear St. Paul saying, we preach to you this gospel, we preach you this specific message, this doctrine that God became man, died and rose from the dead. That is the foundation of our faith because if that isn't a reality for me, then I have nothing to build on. Okay? Okay. So, St. Severus says, given that this same John also said, no one has ever seen God. Obviously, you know that the scripture tells us no one has ever seen God. So how can he assure us that the living word of life has been seen and touched? It's clear that it was in his incarnate and human form that he was visible and touchable. What was not true of him by human nature became true of him in that way. For he is one and the same invisible word, both visible and invisible. And without diminishing in either respect, he became touchable in both his divine human nature. Okay, so I'm going to try to introduce a few church fathers here and there just for us to be a little bit more familiarized with them because this is the foundation of our theology. Like, these are the people that lived with Christ. These were actually the disciples of the ones who wrote this text. So, St. John the Evangelist had Clement and St. Polycarpus, these people who lived with him, the Apostolic Fathers, they have a more credible word and understanding of the Scriptures than us. Just like, let's say, right now this is being recorded, right? And let's say 10 years from now, I die, go to heaven, hopefully. But um, all you have left is this recording. And uh, let's say I said something a little controversial in the recording. Every one of you guys are, are interpreting it a little bit differently. Some of you are saying, Ah, Buna Joe really meant this. Some of you are saying, No, he really meant that because he said this and that. But at the end of the day, who would really have the final say among you about what I really meant? Not the recording. Who, who knows me best here? <laughs> so if Marina comes and says, Guys, listen, Abuna Joe, I know he said this and this and this in the recording, but this is really what he meant by it. That settles it. It settles the score. Because what she says goes. She knows me best. You, the rest of us, our opinion doesn't matter. So when it comes to scriptures, it's the same story. We have to get our minds wrapped around the sayings of the fathers. Because they knew the scriptures best. They knew Christ best. So when we learn from them, we have the most authentic understanding of Christ. Okay? So that's why you're going to see me just throw out a few of the fathers' quotes here and there. And he's saying exactly what we've already concluded. That the only way God, who has never been seen, can be seen, is if he becomes mortal. And that's in his incarnate Logos, Christ. Now, I have to ask you, what does that really mean? What does it mean that God became man? Someone asks you, what is the incarnation? 
Like, what do you say? <laughs> There's really no right or wrong answer. He becomes like us. He becomes like us. He, he understands it. The scriptures even say that he sympathizes with us. In Hebrews, he says that he accepts all our afflictions so as to sympathize with us. What else? What does it mean to you personally, at least? So we can know him better. So we can okay. Come down, to earth. come down to our level. That's what Saint A says. So that he comes to our level because uh, we were so pathetic that we couldn't look up to him. So he had to come down to our level because we weren't capable of looking up. Like we were so tangible and so sensible that he needed to come down to our level. Good, you guys have read the fathers very well. <laughs> so going along, Saint A as well, he says, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. Again, there's no... What's uh, ours? Hmm? How did he take that? Ours? That was my next question. <laughs> there, there is no standardized definition, but for me personally, this is what the Incarnation is all about. He took what is ours and gave us what is His. So let's answer your question. Sin. What is it that's ours? Our um, sins, our evil thoughts, our lusts, our... Good. The Scriptures even says, He became sin and curse. He took upon Himself those consequences. That's what's ours. Even the consequence of death itself. Right? He took upon Himself all that's ours. All our frailties, all our weaknesses, all our limitations. He even surrendered Himself to the needs of our growth and development. Like He... He's the one who created all things and He feeds all creation, yet He Himself surrendered Himself to our needs. That as a child, like He would say, Mom, I need some water. <laughs> like, how? Whenever He's the one who quenches the thirst of all creation. So He surrendered Himself to those needs. He accepted all that is ours. But it doesn't stop there. So that he can give us what? His love, his body, his, his nature. All that is his. As a matter of fact, that is the very purpose. The purpose of his incarnation is so that he can give us all that is his. That he can give us his patience. Like when we're just fed up with people at work <laughs> and we're fed up with. Uh, kids driving us crazy or fed up with whatever that we have His divine patience that He can give us His forgiveness whenever all the people in the world are offending us we can forgive and forget the same way God forgives and forgets that He can give us His love that He can give us the very same obedience that He had to the point that He surrendered His life unto the death of the cross think of all that is God's all that is God's is made to be ours by His grace. So He lived for us. He lived for us. 
Any questions on that? Other thoughts, comments? Does that make us gods? Absolutely, by grace. That's what St. E said. God became man, that man may become God. And he's not the only one who said that. Irenaeus said that, Clement said that, uh, Cyril said that. All the fathers said that. So expand on that. What does it mean to be God? It means to be all that he is by, by grace. If you think of the qualities of God, you know, the phrase something like, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it must be a duck. So if you walk like Jesus and you talk like Jesus, you must be Jesus. It's, very that, it's really that simple. The point that your life is so reflective of His that you are all that He is. That's the purpose of our life, that we become Christ. Again, by His grace, it's not like something we earn by our own intelligence. But we do the very simple things. It's not an esoteric concept where we have this fancy philosophy and big formula. We just read the Bible, pray, go to church, take communion. We forgive those who have offended us. We do the basics. We become all that He is. It's not this fancy philosophy. So does that mean... We're not divine. We don't become divine. We, well, we have the divine in us. Right, right. But I'm saying we don't become divine. We're human, right? It's like Christ is divine and human. He gives us His divinity. What do we partake in the Eucharist? Yeah, a nice body. But what is that? What is His That's body? Just bread? Him. It's Him. It's the divinity. We partake of His... The St. Peter says the same thing, that we might become partakers of His divine nature. So, we don't think of this something as our natural property. That is just a gift that we don't deserve. So yes, we do become all that He is. But, if we are to become all that He is, that is to be divine like Him. And, for, for all of the people we look up to, all the people that are our role models, they lived like Christ in that very same divine way. People that accepted insults and were able to just forgive so easily. This is a divine quality. It's not by our own human strength that we can just forgive and forget. It's not. Every good deed is a product of God's work in our life. As a matter of fact, John 14, 12, he says, even greater works than these you will do. God, who healed the sick and raised the dead, is telling us, greater works than these you will do. Why or how so? Because for God, well, it ain't no thing for God to raise the dead. You're God. (laughs) You are the source of life. But for me, to bring a soul from death to life, and through repentance gives them a new start, that's a big deal. For a mortal man to do what Christ did is unheard of. Okay? Now, St. Paul, uh, sorry, St. John mentions a specific progression here. What does he start with? The senses by which we perceive him are made very clear here. 
What comes first in what St. John mentioned? Who, whom we have heard, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Okay. God, from the very start of the story, brings creation into existence through what? Through His Word. Throughout the Old Testament, how does humanity perceive Him? Through His Word. He speaks to them. The prophets prophesy. It's not... You know, it's not, except for a few rare circumstances that they see a vision or something, but the norm is first through hearing, right? And it is that which he mentions here first. St. Paul echoes the very same words. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear him without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is typically how we begin our spiritual walk. It's by perceiving his word, hearing his word. Right? Now, where, where does he take us next? Seeing, and then, and then touching. Okay, so here's a very interesting progression. We hear Him, we see Him, we touch Him. Is there a reason for this sort of order? As you get closer, you hear Him further, you can see, and then you touch. Exactly. So, I don't think this is like a standardized formula, of course. Because we are perceiving Him through all these senses at all times, right? We're hearing Him now. It doesn't mean we're at the very first step of our walk with Him, right? But generally speaking, as we progress in our walk with Christ, we kind of take a step deeper and deeper and deeper throughout this progression. So, I'm going to mention something very interesting that St. John himself experiences in Revelations and see how you can pick up this sort of progression. Alright, so in Revelations chapter 1, let me just follow up on here if, um, if you want or flip to it in your, in your Bible. So he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Theatera, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his, his right hand seven altars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its, in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am he who lives forever. Okay, so, what's interesting here about this experience? Follow the same pattern. It's the exact same pattern. Okay, so, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. In, in the Apocalypse, in his experience, re- receiving this revelation, he first hears him, and he couldn't have possibly even seen him, because he's behind him, right? So he first sees him. So this word, hearing, is very interesting, because hearing is not like a directional perception. Hearing is different than seeing, because seeing, I can only see what's in front of me here. Hearing is very interesting because it's a little more oriented to different locations. I'm only able to perceive my sight to the direction I'm oriented here. But in hearing, God kind of like can hit us from any direction. He can speak from here, from here, behind us, anywhere. And that's how God typically starts with us. Maybe like gives us a little knock from behind and he says, hey, I'm here. I'm still reaching out to you. Even though you can't see me, you're, you're looking away from me, you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to church, you're not talking to the servants, you're not doing anything that is directed towards me, but I'm still coming after you. I'm still going to talk to you, no matter where you're facing. What comes next? Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lamps, and in the midst of the seven lamps stands one like the Son of Man. So here, he had to turn. Right? He had to like make a decision. Okay, I want to see you. I'm going to now orient myself towards you. And this is very similar to our own spiritual life. Like We have to, sooner or later, think about where is this voice coming from? God is reaching out to us, right? But for me to see Him, now I have to turn towards Him. Because most often, I may be walking away from Him. But when I turn, now it's my part to see Him. John here turned. He kind of did this 180. It's kind of like a figure of repentance. Okay, now I want to orient myself towards you. I want to commit experiencing you. I want to commit to seeing you. Now, after that comes what? Oh, he laid his, his right hand on me. Exactly. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand on me. See how beautiful that is now? He's now engaged with him. He, he's now in a more intimate perception with Christ. He laid his hand on him. Now, he not only hears him, sees him, but he touches him. 
Okay. Now, this progression has the very same climax in our spiritual life. Where is this climax when we not only hear Him, see Him, but we touch Him in our own spiritual life? Hear Him like, through the Word? But, but to touch Him. Oh, like, communion. communion. Look what St. John says. St. John Chrysostom says, when the Word says, this is my body, be convinced of it and believe it. And look at it with the eyes of the mind. Okay, so you got to believe it and know that it is going to require your mind to wrap your senses around it. Since the soul is intertwined with the body, he hands over to you intangible things, that which is perceived intellectually. Because God isn't just a material. God is intangible. But for you to relate to Him, what does He do? He becomes tangible. He... he kind of belittles himself to our level. This is that condescension. In his love and humility, he kind of lowers himself to what we can perceive, right? So, intangible things. He hands over to you that which is perceived intellectually. How many now say, I wish I could see his shape, his appearance, his garments, his sandals? Only look, you see him, you touch him, you eat him. This is the climax of our sensual perception in the Eucharist itself. A lot of people don't really wrap their minds around the gift that we have on the altar. A lot of people limit the experience of Christ to hearing sermons or Bible studies or even reading the Word. I'm sorry, reading the scriptures is not the climax. It's eating his body and his blood. This is the climax. This is where we take what is his. He gives us his divinity to make us who he is. This is the climax of our walk with him. It's in the Eucharist. Okay. Now... Any questions about that? We're just going to wrap up in these last one or two minutes and stop there. But before we uh, put our conclusion together, that, that was a very elaborate concept. So I want to make sure everyone's on the same page. It's good so far? Okay. Now... The disciples were the ones who heard Him, saw Him, and touched Him. Based on everything that we're saying, can we say we are any less because we didn't live with Him and see Him and touch Him? Can we say that? No. And I'll be the first to admit to say, I wish I was just with the disciples. I wish I just saw him walking down the streets of Galilee. I wish I just sat at his feet like Mary Magdalene. But look at what St. Augustine says. He kind of puts this concept into a reality check. He says, The disciples saw the Lord in the flesh, and they heard his words, which they made known to us. 
we have also heard but have not seen. So are we less joyful than they who both saw and heard? No. For John goes on to say that the reason for his preaching is that we might share in their fellowship. Like, he's telling us this message so that we can have what he had. He's not saying, so you guys could kind of come close, like, you're never really going to have what we had because we lived with him. But, you know, we want to just give you, like, the next best thing. <laughs> Well, let's say how Jesus talked to Thomas. He said, what did he tell him? Like, blessed are those who yes. believe without seeing. Exactly. More blessed are those yeah. who so believe and have not yet seen. Yeah. So we should Absolutely. Be joyful. Absolutely. And, and, and that's a profound statement because what we have is exactly what, the, what those who lived with him and walked with him and ate with him for three years had. Every time we approach the Eucharist, it's, it's that important. Alright, so this is the last message I want to leave you, and then we're just going to stop there. Um, he ends saying, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Right? The purpose that we said, and this goes along throughout the whole theme of the epistle, that we may have the same joy that they had. Bede says that, the joy of all teachers is complete by their preaching when they bring many into the fellowship of the Holy Church. So if he is joyful knowing that we will participate in what they participated in, our joy can be completed in what way? When we bring others into that very same faith. When we introduce Christ to others. Yeah. This is a good place for us to stop and to just reflect on what really gives us joy. Uh, do, do we find joy in the material, transient things, the temporary things? Or do we just find joy knowing that our brother or sister came closer to Christ? He says, he says I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Nothing makes me more joyful than to know you are with Christ. So, for a spouse, nothing should make me joyful than to know my wife is in Christ. For a parent, nothing should make me joyful than to know my children are in Christ. In the same way for us as servants and even throughout our interactions in work or school or whatever it is. Any Comments, questions, concerns? Okay, so you have your little study guide. I just put those quotes on there in case you thought um, they were helpful. You could take them with you. Um, what I like to do is just take like a minute for each of us to just personally meditate on the information that we heard today. Um, and to try to transform it into like a practical application. Okay, a lot of times we just read the scriptures, we hear a sermon, go through a Bible study, whatever. We don't just pause and process what we just absorbed. So ask yourself, what does this do for me personally? And how could this change my life? Okay, so we'll stop there.
for the sake of time, and uh, so I like to call my little take five. So it's take take five to do that. Okay. What does this do for me personally, and how can this transform into a practical application for my own life? Stand to pray. Yes. I think you mean. Make heaven for God's way. How do you know God's way? <laughs> One small question. <laughs> it's so funny. So I, I was listening to a sermon by Amber Angelos and. Uh, he says the exact same thing in the beginning of his, um, of his lecture. The lecture was on God's will. So he said, a few months ago, I'm giving a talk, and somebody raises their hand, and at the end they say, Sayyidina, I just have one last quick question. How do I know God? <laughs> that was you, right? <laughs> I'll give you the, the quick the quick answer. Although there is real no quick answer, but do you do you sometimes know what dad wants? After thirty two years of marriage? I should. You should, right? No, it's I know, but he doesn't know. Uh, it's really just a product of a relationship. Like, the closer you come to Christ, He says, um, my sheep know my voice. And, uh, like, if, if you close your eyes, and you're not looking anywhere, and Dad says your name, and I say your name, and other people say your name, you'll be able to distinguish Dad's name between everybody else telling you, yeah, because you've lived long enough with him to know what his voice sounds like. Mm. So you knowing God's will, it's not like God's will is in a box and he says, my will is for you to be a dentist and if you're not a dentist, you just ruined your life. <laughs> it's not like this specific one way or the highway type of thing. It's very dynamic. Um, of course, He guides us to what will suit us best. He guides us to the relationships that will help edify us the most. Um, so it's very dynamic, although He does direct us in a certain way. And how we know how He directs us is to just read His Word, pray. The very simple things, liturgies, and the more we spend time with Him, the more His voice becomes clear. That's, this is the simplest I can put it. <laughs>